Donald Trump indicted again. We'll break down the charges, which were released just minutes before this recording. Then liberal and conservative justices of the Supreme Court joined forces, dropping a shocking decision on voting rights and gerrymandering that could have huge implications for many elections to come. I'll dust off my law degree and do my best to make sense of it all. And then finally, hold on to your outrage, grab your pitchforks and torches, because we're going to talk about greedflation. Is corporate profiteering responsible for our inflation crisis? We'll try to give you an answer. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Everybody, uh, today I have a special guest, the man who likes to see all sides of every issue, Isaac Saul from Tango. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Roger. I'm glad to be here. I couldn't think of a better day to have you on because minutes before <laughs> minutes before you sat down for this, the uh, indictment was released and I get to read you key parts of this indictment. You've never seen them before. So this is really exciting and I want to just start from the fact that you and I come at this from the perspective of both having been critical of the Alvin Bragg investigation. So we are not, at least from my perspective, to preview what I know about your position and mine, uh, I'm not the kind of person who jumps on this kind of stuff uh, and cheers on political prosecutions lightly, right? And I'm not cheering on anything, but I, I, I squarely come down on the side after reading this indictment that this is an appropriate indictment. And I don't come at that from the perspective of, I hope, like some kind of partisan motivation here, which I hope will become clear as this goes on. But Donald Trump was indicted Thursday by a federal grand jury in an investigation into his handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. This is the first time in history that the federal government has brought charges against a former president. Uh, from what we understand, there are seven charges, and I speed read this indictment document that came out uh, right before you sat down, Isaac, you also wrote a whole piece this morning about this. Uh, do you want me to jump right to these excerpts or do you want to give any color on what you've read so far before we get to this? Yeah, sure. I mean, I am, you know, like everybody else, I think in the political and the journalism world, I've been waiting anxiously for, for this to come out. I will just say, you know, I, I mean, I, I published this piece this morning about the indictment and I, I wrote you know, based off of what we knew from all the reporting that had come out and what Trump's lawyers said on CNN last night about what the charges were, uh, the specifics of why they've decided to move forward with this is obviously, you know, very key. And I, as as you told me when we got on the, you know, kind of the pre-show studio that the indictment had come out, I pulled it up on my computer as well. I haven't read it yet, but I, I did see the word nuclear somewhere, which doesn't yes. seem great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, okay. So what we knew before sitting down, and it's possible that after reading all these indictments, some of these numbers could be off or whatever, but seven counts, Espionage Act, um, probably misuse of classified information under the Espionage Act, which definitely becomes clear once you read these details. Obstruction of justice, which we also now have color on what that means here false statements, uh, and particularly a statute 1512 witness tampering. Uh, and, uh, Trump's lawyers had previously uh, previewed that they believe there are some conspiracy charges here. Notably, Isaac, uh, you probably saw this this morning. This will be, uh, at least the initial hearing will be in front of Eileen Cannon, which does that mean anything to you? Yeah. I mean, she's a Trump appointed judge who has kind of broken in his favor in the past. I mean, it, it just speaks to kind of how 
uncharted the territory is that we are entering that a president is going to sit before a federal judge that he put in that position to to try a case that could put him in jail. I mean, it's totally, totally nuts. It's just unlike anything we've ever seen, really. The combination of this going in front of Eileen Cannon based on what we know about her and she kind of got smacked down a little bit by the appeals court combined with what, like, I think the, the blanketly, I think, inappropriate nature of the way that the Manhattan DA handled that side of it, starting to make me think that this country might not be well-equipped for political prosecutions at this point in our history. (laughs) But with that said, let me read you some of this. And um, this is right at the top of the document. So the classified documents Trump stored in his boxes included information regarding defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. The unauthorized unauthorized disclosure of these classified documents could put at risk the national security of the United States, foreign relations. I don't even have to read the rest of that. It's probably obvious. So this was, I think, the worst case scenario of what we were all thinking, right? Because people were like, ah, maybe it's the letter he wrote to Kim Jong-un, which we all knew was in there. I think this is about as bad as it gets um, based on the description in terms of the vulnerabilities that we had from these documents. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, again, I'm just hearing this for the very first time as we have this conversation, but certainly going into this, what the big talking point was from some of his defenders was basically like, this is not going to end up being him, you know, bringing the nuclear secrets to Mar-a-Lago. I mean, that was literally like the joke that was out there. So the fact that this is going to have that, that, that the documents are related honestly to military defense stuff at all I think is a game changer for certainly a lot of Republicans who are kind of like anywhere near the middle that that are left who maybe even were defending him this morning. I mean, that's about, you know, th- that is like the bridge you can't cross is like, don't bring the nuclear secrets home. <laughs> Isaac, it gets worse. Let me read you another paragraph here. Uh, because you could be like, well, he had this stuff. He didn't, he didn't give it to anybody and the president has had a security clearance. So what's the harm? Well, in July of 20, this I'm reading from the document now. In July of 2021, at Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, Jersey, uh, during an audio recorded meeting with a writer, a publisher, and two members of his staff, none of whom possessed security clearance, Trump showed and described a plan of attack that Trump said was prepared for him by the Department of Defense and a senior military official. Trump told the individuals that the plan was highly confidential and secret. Uh, Trump also said that, quote, as president, I could have I could have declassified it and now I can't, you know, but this is still a secret. So this is notable, Isaac, because one of the best defenses he had and I saw I saw one of his former lawyers on TV yesterday saying, well, the best argument we've got is that he had an inherent power to declassify it. But here we have the Department of Justice saying, no, he's saying, first of all, he's breaking the law on it on a recording bed. He's also giving away his only defense, essentially, to this, which is that he had an inherent power to declassify. He's he's acknowledging in audio that he does not have that authority. Right. I mean, that is that was kind of like the maybe the most critical part of his whole defense was that he knew that the documents were unclassified because he had declassified them before he left office, which is 
you know, I mean, that was pretty critical. That is an insane paragraph that you just yeah. read. So he was, so they're saying, I mean, we had this, we had this story from CNN, the exclusive story from CNN, that there was this recording where he was talking about these documents, but CNN had hedged in the story and said specifically, you know, you can hear papers rustling, but it's unclear whether he's actually showing them the documents in the recording, but the indictment is saying that he was literally explaining the plans and holding the actual document. Yeah, it says showed, it says showed and described is what he said. Oh my uh, God, man. And so, so that gets to the documents themselves and then the, the obstruction of justice. So here's what they had to say about that. So they talk about how on March 30th, the FBI opened an investigation into his unlawful retention of documents. Um, federal grand jury investigation began the next month. The grand jury issued subpoena. Trump endeavored, and so I'll quote from it from here on out. Trump endeavored to obstruct the FBI and grand jury investigations and conceal his continued retention of classified documents by, among other things, A, suggesting that his attorney falsely represent to the FBI and grand jury that Trump did not have the documents called for by the grand jury subpoena, B, directing defendant Waltina Nauda to move boxes of documents to conceal them from Trump's own attorney, the FBI, and the grand jury. C, suggesting that his attorney hide or destroy documents called for by the grand jury subpoena. D, providing the FBI and grand jury just some of the documents called for by the grand jury subpoena while claiming that he was fully cooperating. And E, causing a certification to be submitted to the FBI and grand jury, falsely representing that all documents called for by the grand jury subpoena had been produced while knowing that, in fact, not all documents had been produced. So Isaac, that's pretty specific. Yeah. And that is a huge, I mean, that's a really critical part of the charges here. I mean, it, it, frankly, it's, you know, in the kind of uh, whataboutism game that is going to go on with Hillary and Biden and even Pence, who, you know, had some classified documents at his home in Indiana, the the crux of the this is different is, you know, Biden found the documents and alerted the Justice Department and gave them back. Pence did the same thing. Hillary never actually possessed the documents. She was transmitting classified documents on an email server, and they couldn't really prove that she was, you know, willfully, intentionally breaking the law. And when she got in trouble for it, she mostly cooperated. Trump is, I mean, if if they have him on the obstruction which it sounds like they do based on what you just read to me. I mean, that is also a different ball game and enhances the legal danger that he's in, in a serious way. Um, I'm shocked. I mean, I knew it was going to be bad, but I think you're kind of checking off the worst case scenario for Trump boxes right now, just on my first listen to the indictment. I mean, this is, yeah, this is not good for him. Well, he, let me give you some of the stuff that's in Trump's favor here. So one is the judge. So this is a judge who just, you know, just following her, honestly, like I don't say this lightly, there just are questions about the impartiality of this judge. Uh, and that that will be something we'll just have to monitor. She made some rather strange rulings uh, early on in this case. The The second piece here is that it's a jury in Miami because there were two grand juries. There was one convened in Washington, one convened in Florida. The Washington jury would have been among a pool who 90%, I think, voted Democratic or whatever in, in Washington, D.C. Now you've got a Florida jury. So that is actually in his favor as well. 
but the judge alone could do a lot here. Like all they need to do is keep granting um, continuances until the election is over and he just needs to be president. And this, these charges basically go away. I mean, you'll control the Justice Department, never mind the whole like time honored question of whether you could pardon yourself. But the he he just needs to run out the clock. So in Trump's favor, these facts could be really, really bad. The question is, like, are they politically damaging enough to stop him? And that I don't really have an answer to. I, I have a hard time believing it would be politically damaging enough to stop him in the Republican primary. How independent voters view this, I can't imagine a lot of them are going to look at this and and think anything other than, wow, this is highly inappropriate, but the spin machine is revving up right now. I mean, yeah, the interesting thing is so many of them have already sort of staked out their positions before the indictment came out, which some of them might regret based on what you just read to me. Uh, you know, I said in my piece this morning that the challenge for the special counsel, Jack Smith, here is that he he has to not just have a slam dunk airtight case because if he loses this case the the damage politically to the you know to the justice department's reputation is going to be so severe he he also i mean he has to convince uh the country that trump is a bona fide clear obvious criminal and and a big chunk of the country and and that's going to be really hard to do you know, no matter what, given how entrenched everybody is right now. I'm curious, what, do you think there's a chance that Judge Cannon actually recuses herself from this case, given that she, I mean, it's it seems unlikely. I, I would be surprised if she did based on her track record, I guess, but I can't imagine a more clear-cut case where recusal was necessary than your you know, you're ruling on a case for the person who appointed you to the position. Well, I'm I, long time listeners will know I'm a, I'm a big fan of recusal. I have a hair trigger for recusals, and especially in cases like this that involve like the most dangerous legal questions that we have as a country, like indicting a former president. I thought uh, Alvin Bragg should have recused himself. I thought Tish James should have recused herself. I thought Whitaker should have recused himself. And so um, I also thought that. Um, Barr, you know, based on some of the things he said about Mueller, should have stayed away from that investigation as well. It's one of the reasons why I like this particular special counsel provision is it gives the it gives a, a certain arm's length to Garland and to Biden. Biden uh, claims, and I think I, I have every reason to believe him, that he didn't know this was coming down and he didn't interfere in any way. So my answer is yes. I think the problem is. How do you get to an impartial judge in this country, given the way that we approve judges is really tough, right? Because there are other judges in Florida, you know, that that were appointed by Trump that don't have the same kind of smoke around them the way that she does. And so how do we wade through that pool of potential judges to say, well, is it because you were appointed by Trump? Is it because you're a Republican? You know, I don't know. We're, you know, obviously saying that you were like a appointed by a conservative is is not enough to say that that's a reason to recuse yourself. But Cannon is like, seems to be like so close to the line that she would do herself and everybody else a favor to walk away. But I, I, I would be really surprised if, if she did. Yeah, I think me too. I mean, it's an interesting point that it's like every, every judge you're going to find in, you know, the federal court system was appointed by somebody, but it's just, she's fairly new. It's so recent. I mean, it's, there's so many things about it that just feel really kind of icky to me that I, 
I wonder if it'll be enough. I mean, the other thing here that's interesting is, you know, I I wonder about Trump's two lawyers who resigned this morning. You know, they I mean, the initial take on that that I saw was basically like the the case is going to be in Florida and that was their reasoning for but it makes me wonder if they saw this indictment uh and that was more a reaction to that because they knew last night the case was going to be in Florida and they were on the cable network shows defending him. And then this morning, suddenly that's the reason for them resigning. So I didn't even see that. So some of his lawyers resigned yeah, today? Yeah, both of them, or the two of them that had been sort of the most visible. Um, I want to make sure I get his name right. But uh, Jim Trusty, who is the one who did the CNN interview last night, he stepped down and so did John Rowley. Um and the, yeah, they resigned. They released a statement basically saying that they had made the decision because, you know, this the case was going to be taken up in Florida. But Jim Trusty was on CNN last night in primetime at eight o'clock, all in on on defending Trump and, you know, just that they were going to prove his innocence and make it clear that this was, you know, a political winch hunt and all this stuff. And then two hours ago, they resign, which... I don't know. It just makes me think. I mean, if I were his lawyers and I saw this indictment based on what you just read to me, I might want to resign too. I, it's it does not seem particularly good for him right now. Well, I, also because the you know the lawyers, especially criminal defense attorneys, they're primed to defend anybody, right? That's kind of their mentality. Like no matter how serious the crime, I think the problem for them in this case is that the veil has been pierced in the sense that the obstruction and conspiracy charges involve his attorneys. So if you're a lawyer involved in this case and you have a, a particularly ill-disciplined uh, client in Trump who both is not going to listen to whatever, like what, who, whoever knows what Cannon's going to tell him to do, but he, he's not going to do what a good defendant would do, which is be quiet. Uh, he's not going to stop furthering the conspiracy potentially, which is like, and then he's involving his lawyers in the conspiracy and the attorney client privilege has already been pierced in this case. I wouldn't want to touch that no matter how, like, look, if I was defending serial killers, that's one thing, right? Like uh, at least the, the rank and file serial killer is not going to involve you in their conspiracy to commit more murders, right? So the problem here is like, even if you're like the most like, hey, everybody deserves a good defense type person, it it makes you personally involved in a way that I think a lot of attorneys don't want to touch. And and you just look at these crimes. I mean, you're talking about nuclear programs, vulnerabilities in the United States to attack. Like at a certain point, we got to step back and say, put whatever your political affiliation is aside and say, this is just, this is unacceptable. Like absolutely unacceptable. These are the things that put the entire country in danger. Yeah. I mean, look, I said before seeing this indictment, you know, what, what I what I wrote this morning was basically... I think there are two ways to think about them charging Trump here and actually moving forward with the indictment. And one is, you know, other people in his position of power have committed crimes in the past or been credibly accused of committing crimes. And we've never seen an indictment of a former president before. And, you know, I totally buy the concept that Trump is not the first president who should have been indicted. And the fact that we haven't done it in the past, you know, makes creates this double standard that now Trump is being indicted and there's something that feels wrong about that. And he's, you know, public enemy number one of Democrats and the establishment or whatever. So I think that's a totally fair argument to make. And I think there's, you know, there's some credibility to it. 
I think the other framing for it is we have an option now to change that standard. I mean, we could build a future where the standard is actually different, where no matter who you are, whether you're president or senator or vice president or whatever, if you commit a crime, you can credibly believe that the hammer might actually come down on you at some point. And if that is a choice in a vacuum, take Trump out of it, I think most Americans would choose that over what we have been living with. So in that regard, I'm becoming more and more supportive of the idea, despite how dangerous I think it's going to be for the country and despite how divisive it's going to be, despite how absolutely bonkers it's probably going to make this election where, you know, six months from now, Trump could have like 50-50 odds of either being in jail or being president. I mean, that's totally nuts to consider. And I think it could end up being an actual reality that we're living through. All that being said, I would prefer the country where, you know, the Donald Trumps of the world are held accountable. And uh, Jonathan Katz, who's, uh, you know, a definitely liberal writer who I follow and respect a lot. I mean, he wrote a great piece when the the New York indictment, Alvin Bragg indictment came out, which I was very critical of. That was basically like, you know, prosecute them all. Like Bill Clinton should have been tried because he was credibly accused of rape. Let's investigate that. And George Bush committed war crimes and let's investigate that. And I'm, I've sort of sat with that opinion for a while and wrestled with it. And the more I do, the more I kind of respect it where I'm like, I do, I do prefer that posture in this scenario than the one where we say, oh, he's president. Like, we don't want to rock the boat. We shouldn't indict him. And that was before this indictment came out. So I was kind of moving that direction anyway. And now yeah. hearing the details of it, I think sort of give me some more resolve in that position that that maybe this is a good thing. Yeah, I get it. I get it a lot from people who are like, well, what do you, you think Bill Clinton should have been impeached? I'm like, I was in middle school, but yeah, <laughs> like, I think like he, he, sla- he, sla- he, he, he fornicated with an intern and lied about it under oath. Like I, I, yeah, I think he should have left office. And I think the country would have been all the better if Al Gore stepped in and just did the job. Like it was a distraction. It was inappropriate, probably illegal. Like in the, you know, we can parse words about whether he, you know, truly lied under oath or not, but it was close enough that it was just, it just wasn't right. And I think, yeah, like there were politically motivated investigations, whatever, that's always going to be true, right? And you could, you could believe both things at the same time. Now, before we move off of this, I can't get over the question of why. Like, why do all this if you're Trump? Like, and I know this is a, like a question that is unanswerable, but what's your sense? Like a guy who's like, is it just he wants to remain important? Like, what's your sense of what's going on here? I mean, look, the, you know, I it's it's always hard. It's always difficult to talk about Trump, and I don't want to, like, do too much throat clearing here. But I'll just say, like, I'm a reporter, uh, you know, who uh, I'm only I'm only 32. So I spent my first 10 years of my professional career in New York. Trump was not like during my journalism career. He had he was, you know, just starting I mean, my first job was 2013. So by two or three years in my first job, he was in the political world. But I've worked with a ton of New York reporters who covered Trump in the 80s and 90s who who know him, you know, and you hear unbelievable stories about what he used to be like just as a media mogul, as a celebrity, as somebody who like wanted his name in the press and 
you know, all this stuff about him calling reporters, pretending to be somebody else, like all that stuff was real. Like he, he was planning stories about himself. He was working the media. I mean, fundamentally, regardless of how you feel about his politics, and I have mixed feelings about some of his, you know, I, I think he's right about some stuff politically, and I think he's really wrong about some other stuff, but he loves attention. I mean, I don't know how you could at this point make any other argument than that. Like the guy loves attention. He loves being the center of attention. And I think there is something fundamentally immature about like his person and who he is. And I can just imagine him just being like, yeah, I can take that. I'll bring this home. Like I'm going to throw this or just like telling an aide, like, let's keep this. And like, if it's not okay, we'll deal with it later. I, like, I, I just, it's so believable that he would do that. And I don't know how anybody who like follows him and, you know, I don't think he takes the really, I don't think he's ever taken the kind of institutional establishment, like traditional norms seriously, which is so much a part of his appeal. But when it comes to really serious stuff like this, I think I it's pretty easy for me to imagine him just being like, wow, this is so cool. This like plan we have to attack Iran. I'm totally going to like snatch this and, you know, frame it and keep it in my office. I mean, that doesn't sound that ridiculous to me. Like I could just see Trump doing that without really considering that he's like putting himself at risk of going to jail. I I wonder like if he really, if it's hit him yet, because this is big stuff. I mean, this is not... Like if he gets convicted, I've always been like liberals are in fantasy land. Like they live in this world where they just think Trump's going to end up in an orange jumpsuit and it's never going to happen because it never happens because like presidents don't get indicted. They don't get prosecuted. It just doesn't happen. And this is getting real now. Like I'm, I'd be interested in like how real, I mean, I think you're right about Judge Cannon, I mean, that's clearly an out. And maybe this will, maybe in a year, we'll just be like, Teflon Don strikes again. Like he gets the judge he appointed. But this is getting pretty real for him now. I mean, this is like, he's got jail time on the table. I mean, that's a real thing that could happen at this point. Let's turn to something else that, you know, in in a normal week would be the most surprising thing that has happened. And and this is a Supreme Court case by a 5-4 vote uh, decision on Thursday. The justices issued a major voting rights decision ruling that Alabama's new congressional map likely violates the Voting Rights Act. Uh, They declined an invitation to interpret the act that would have made it much more difficult to challenge redistricting plans on the grounds that they would weaken the collective voting power of black people. This is the case of case of Allen versus Milligan, uh, notably, and it involves uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, which bars election practices that result in denial or abridgment of the right to vote based on race. And at issue here were uh, voters and other groups who went to court in 2021 to challenge Alabama's redistricting map uh, for its seven seats in the House of Representatives. And they argued that the map violated Section 2 by diluting the votes of the state's black residents who make up 27% of the state's population. The new plan packed many black voters into a single district in part of uh, Alabama's central black belt, they call it, uh, while at the same time dispersing the rest of the black voters in the rest of the state. Kavanaugh 
Ann Roberts joined the majority. Roberts wrote the majority opinion. Kavanaugh uh, had a consenting opinion. And this is a huge case because, uh, Isaac, I, essentially what it means is the Cook political report changed their rating of the Democrats' chances of taking back the House based on a Supreme Court decision. I can't remember the last time I've ever seen anything like that happen. Yeah, no, I mean, this has the potential. I think I read three to six House seats. uh, It could flip because it doesn't just impact Alabama. It's going to impact other challenges to gerrymandered maps that are, you know, foundationally the same case as as what this case is. I've written a lot about gerrymandering, uh, particularly because of the nutso news week we've had. I haven't gotten a chance to read through the opinion, though I just, before we hopped on, read a few summaries of it. And it's really significant in that, I mean, long-term, this is the kind of Supreme Court opinion that will just be used as precedent. It'll be referred back to you know, in lower courts when when gerrymandered maps get challenged. And in in that way is going to have a really long tail in terms of the impact it's going to have on gerrymandering and, and what states can and can't get away with. Gerrymandering is a scourge. I am like, it is one of my top issues politically. Same. Like we have to find a way to break it. I, you know, I'm sure there are some, str- obviously four Supreme Court justices you know, we're in dissent. And anytime the court is split on this, that means that there are probably some strong arguments against the the case. That being said, I, whenever I write or talk about Supreme Court decisions, I always try and like split them into two lanes, which is the legal arguments and and where I land and what I feel about those and whether the outcome, the ruling was correct. And then like the practical outcome of like, what does this case really mean? What will its impact be? On the practical outcome, on that part of it, I just anything that is going to limit the amount of gerrymandering that happens, which both parties are guilty of, both parties participate in, in increasingly extreme ways, I am very supportive of. So, you know, I think voters should be choosing our politicians. Politicians should not be choosing their voters. This is something that is a productive step in that fight, in my mind. And, you know, just like fundamentally, I think you explain the situation to most voters in a really simple way. 27% of voters, I believe, in Alabama are black and they have seven congressional districts. And one of them has, you know, majority black population and like 80% of the state's black people have been packed into that district or something. I mean, it's like, Okay, clearly something's happening here. It's, it wasn't like a random accounting error. It's right. a big problem. We should do something about it. So, surprised to see this ruling. I think, like most people, I did not think it was going to go this way. Yeah, and the, if you followed the oral arguments, it, it seemed like it was going to go the other way. And there also there was a uh, a shadow docket case. They essentially allowed this to go through this map before the election under this so-called Purcell principle, so we think, right? We don't know the full justification, but the Purcell principle is that federal courts tend not to want to change state voting laws right before an election for good reason. And But obviously, right before the election is the most important time sometimes to change them. But like as you talk about, there's this, there are implications for other states. Some people are speculating that Texas might have to yield as many as five majority-minority districts to its map. There are other states like Louisiana and Georgia that are impacted by this. And, and a lot of people are 
doing the math here and trying to offset what they think are going to be democratic losses in North Carolina, which I think you've written about. There's a new conservative majority on that Supreme Court that's expected to draw a congressional map that's more favorable to Republicans. So you've got all that coming out where they're like, who knows what the yielding of that balance is based on that. I think the Democrats kind of come out slightly ahead based on the amount of states that are at play. But then you also have New York, which New York, Democrats severely underperformed in New York last cycle. So you start to think about, all right, if you're sitting in the D-Trip headquarters, you're starting to think, all right, like we've got some momentum here and we're getting more favorable maps. But stepping out outside of the sort of partisan motivations here, this is at least one small step. I would call it a small step in favor of fairer maps. But until I think the Supreme Court is willing to go in the direction of, because this is racial gerrymandering, right? Until they're willing to touch partisan gerrymandering and say that that is unconstitutional, uh, we're we're going to be in for a world of hurt. You know, the only alternative is that the Congress decides to pass a law banning partisan gerrymandering. The problem is these are the very people who benefit from it. <laughs> right. So it's going to be really hard to pass such a law. Yeah, that seems the most unlikely of all the outcomes to me, unfortunately, which is, I know, a pretty cynical view. I mean, the other thing here, first of all, related to New York Part of the reason Democrats underperformed New York is because they tried to gerrymander the state so yep. extremely that their map got struck down and they basically shot themselves in the foot, which is another great step. You know, the the lessons kind of learned there that maybe they hold on to the house if they don't get so far out of their skis. You know, they could have reasonably gerrymandered the map instead of unreasonably right. gerrymandering it <laughs> and and maybe save themselves, you know, three or four seats. And then the other thing that's interesting, too, about this case in um, Alabama, which I didn't know before reading some more about it this morning, was that there were two Trump-appointed judges in the, the lower courts who had also ruled that this was a racial gerrymander. So, you know, that that's significant to me that you have two, you know, Trump-appointed conservative judges ruling that in the lower court, and then it goes to the Supreme Court where there's a strong conservative majority, and they uphold that ruling that, you know, I, I know the opinions are slightly different, but they they come down in the end on the same spot that this was a racial gerrymander. That is, to me, pretty big, and I think it's it's sort of just the last couple of years, you take that in in total with what happened in New York, Obviously, North Carolina, the the map's going to probably be more extreme next year. I mean, it's it's there's this push and pull happening right now. And I think the anti-gerrymandering side has notched a few wins recently, which is nice to see. But yeah, of course, you're right. I mean, the partisan gerrymandering is the big one and is a little bit harder to prove and a little bit stickier and a little bit squishier. And uh, until we do something about that, we're probably going to be, you know, fighting an uphill battle for a while. Yeah. And one of the surprising parts of this is that this court in 2013 issued the Holder decision, Shelby County versus Holder, which struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So what was issued at this case was Section 2, Section 5 was 2013, which is Section 5 is the preclearance provision, which essentially said, which actually would have prevented this case from even coming about, which essentially said places like Alabama that have a history of racist practices would have had to pre-clear with the Department of Justice any of these major changes to their maps. So ostensibly this would have been prevented, but this court, including Roberts, uh, gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and now um, he's at least preserving Section 2, which is really fascinating. Uh, I, I'd be interested to see what his view is generally of the civil rights provisions, because one of the debates that you see in 
the dissents and even amongst uh, Kavanaugh and the concurrence, like he he kind of went back and forth with Thomas in his concurrence, is like the question of well, how long shall these provisions? Uh, how how long shall we maintain these civil rights era provisions? Right, is kind of a debate that was happening in the background of this decision. Essentially, Kavanaugh was saying, well, we at least need to continue with them now. Yeah, I, I'm curious. What's your read on Kavanaugh? Because he seems to be a lot less predictable to me than people kind of made him out to be early on. I mean, this is the third or fourth time that he's kind of come down, even you know, if you include some of the dissents where he was in the minority or whatever, has sort of come down in a more kind of heterodox conservative position or align with the liberal justices that mm-hmm. I was not really expecting. I think if not for the 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 way that he was, uh, uh, his approval process went and the allegations and his handling of that and the, like the, just the whole thing. I think we have a different Kavanaugh and this is, I'm, I'm, this is me totally speculating. I'm, I'm out in total speculation land here, but when I was in law school, Kavanaugh was like the premier clerkship on the DC circuit for Democrats and for Republicans. And people would go to Kavanaugh and they would say, this is a moderate, this is the guy who everybody on the Supreme Court respects. His reputation was like, was this heterodox reputation, right? And as a guy who, and this is where I get to my speculation really, is a guy who really cared what the conventional wisdom thinks. A little bit of like what Roberts is like, where like, like cares what David Brooks is writing about him in the New York Times, right? That's what Kavanaugh was, right? He cares about respectability politics. And- I definitely don't want to go down the rabbit hole of how I feel about like the accusations against him or whatever. But one thing is for certain, he came out of that bitter. And I think he came out of that bitter and it pushed him to the right because he he basically, in my estimation, sized up the politics of the moment. He was like, well, I'll never be able to win the respectability politics ever again. So I'm abandoning that game. Now I'm going to do the best I can not to piss off the people who went to bat for me when I was getting approved. And I saw that mostly of him early on in his tenure in the Supreme Court. I'm starting to see a little bit of the old Kavanaugh now. And I think the question is, like, is that going to stay or not? I think he'll always be more right. And this is, once again, total speculation. He'll always be more right wing than he would have been, in my opinion, based on the reputation he had on DC Circuit. The question is, does he cool off over time uh, and this to me seems like at least evidence that he would. The, the Dobbs decision obviously being the opposite. I, I personally don't think the Dobbs decision would have happened. I, I don't think he would have joined Dobbs in the way he did under his previous sort of temperament uh, and reputation. It, and this is all speculation. So take it. I like it though. You know Good it. speculate. Very interesting, colorful speculation. Yeah, That's fascinating. Same. Yeah. Because they're human beings, these people, right? So I think like... I, I, I read a lot of Supreme Court opinions, and my general opinion is there it's like an elephant and rider situation. There's a lot of politics and psychology going on with really smart people who can make it look like it's jurisprudence. Right. So like, <laughs> that's my general reading of, of the Supreme Court decisions. Well, let's talk about one last subject here, Isaac. Uh, greed inflation. So mm. you wrote a very fascinating piece uh, about an issue that we've talked about for a long time on the show, which is what's going on, what's driving inflation. 
And there is this term called greedflation that's being thrown around and it's been being thrown around for a while. What what is this term? What does it mean? Well, it's a good question. I defining it interestingly enough to me is kind of the whole ball game. Uh, I, I think the common parlance, the way that it's being used, is basically that corporations are driving up prices in an unreasonable manner. They're price gouging consumers and they're refusing to bring those prices down. And that is part of what is making inflation so sticky. And so the way that it's often presented is as a counterpoint to the idea that the government put too much money into the economy, overstimulated the economy. So you know, the the sort of binary that's been set up in the the chattering class is on one side, people saying, you know, we we passed too much COVID stimulus, too much money came into the economy, and it's the government's fault. Basically, the Fed's printing money, it's got loose loose monetary fiscal policy, whatever. We overflowed the bathtub and now we have inflation, classic story. And then there's Another side that's kind of popped up that I think at the beginning was a very sort of more fringe progressive theory that is now getting a lot more mainstream credence, which is that there are were actions taken by CEOs of major corporations that have kind of boxed us into these high prices, which is essentially that they saw an opportunity to raise prices more than they needed to, to cover the increase in their costs caused by the initial inflation. And that's why we're seeing extraordinarily high prices, but we're also seeing extraordinarily high profits for a lot of these corporations. And so these two sides have kind of been battling it out, basically. And explain for our audience what a markup is, because this is a term of art that's really central to this discussion. Yeah. So so a markup is basically how much, you know, if I can make a coffee cup for $5, and I say that because I ha- like you, I have one sitting right in front of me. Uh, but like my cost of production are $5 to create this coffee cup. I have to decide how much I want to sell it for. So maybe I say I want to sell it for $7. So basically what's happening is, you know, the cost has gone from making my coffee cup for $5 to say maybe making it for $10. But now instead of marking it up $2 to keep my profits at, at you know, $7 I'm selling it for and $5 I made it for, I sell the coffee cup for $20. So now I get $10 of profit for every cup I make instead of $2. And that's pretty much the accusation is that corporations have both seen their their cost of production go up, but have risen their their, uh, markups so dramatically that they're also seeing their profits rise despite, you know, having fewer sales even. And so I think, and the key piece of data here, and, you know, obviously 2021 being one of the big years for inflation, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City calculated that in 2021, um, when inflation reached an annualized rate of 5.8%, corporate markups grew by 3.4%. So that's one data point, meaning like one could argue, and, and a few people have, like Michael Hilzik in the LA Times, that that the corporate markups were responsible for a big chunk of the inflation. So that's data point number one. And data point number two is that since 2000, wages, and this is like a much longer time period, obviously, wages have gained 82% while corporate profits have increased 600%. So in the sort of capital versus labor trade-off, the capital side of the equation has been winning and, and taking an outsized series of the gains. So taking those two data points, how do you make sense of those two data points? 
Yeah, look, I mean, first of all, I think I think the long-term trend is real in my opinion. I mean, I, I think um, most people, and, and I think it's observable at this point over the long-term trend that we're seeing increasing wealth disparity in our country. And, you know, your average American worker is much further divorced from a lot of your typical American CEOs than maybe they were 50 years ago. Um, that's still a debate. I sort of come down and like the the labor side is has been getting fleeced a bit in the last 20 years. Um, to me, you know, I've I've found myself kind of flopping back and forth on this position. I mean, when I first wrote about this, I was like pretty all in on the greedflation narrative. Then I read some really compelling pieces kind of, you know, in the middle of the debate that pushed me back to the side of, okay, we're just seeing it. Like, this is what you'd expect actually when the government overstimulates the economy is, of course, corporations are going to see more profits because they've overstimulated the economy. People have more money. They're spending more money. And it's an opportunity for people who sell things to sell more things. Now I'm sort of landing in this place where I think it's still a result of the initial overstimulation that the economy had, but I think there is increasing evidence for this idea that corporate executives and corporations saw a very unique opportunity where, A, a lot of customers weren't going to punish them for, for jacking up these prices because they were all doing it together and there wasn't really any place for consumers to go. I mean, you know, whether it was buying, you know, eggs or it was buying shipping containers, it was like there wasn't one major company that was just jacking those prices up. There was like they were going up everywhere. And so the argument for greedflation to me is basically like the upper echelon of American society, the upper middle class to the very, very wealthy made out kind of okay on the other end of the pandemic, which is something we don't really talk about. They basically just like saved money, got to work from home, you know, stock market, if you played it right, was incredibly Well, never mind if you bought a, a house at the, in the middle of the you pandemic. You bought a house, That's your crazy. wealth went up. Yeah. yeah all these things. And then there's this other part of our country that didn't do really well. And so those people are kind of getting priced out of certain things when eggs cost $5 a dozen instead of $2 a dozen. But for some other folks, it doesn't really matter. It's like, I don't care about three a $3 difference. And so these corporations are making more money on fewer sales. And the question is kind of what to do from a policy perspective once you get there. And, you know, in America, certainly price controls on things are, I mean, that's a really, really hot button third rail issue. I don't think we'd see that in a big major scale way. But I do think there is some credence to the argument that, you know, the the corporations were taking advantage of a very, very unique environment that could only be created by this sort of pandemic induced craziness, which is basically what we experienced in the economy, I mean, really unique situation. I do think there's a, I do think there's some things the government could do. And, and you allude to some of this in your piece. One is the interest rate policy, and we, I've been talking about this for a while on the show. It has this perverse effect, which is if you just focus on housing for a second, the 
the justification is that they want to lower the cost of the good, which is housing, right? They want to say, all right, like less cheap capital should drive down the demand for all of this kind of stuff. And that will decrease the prices. The problem is people aren't selling their houses. So the prices are staying high ish. And even if they went down a little bit, the, the the difference between the average cost per month for a person based on the new interest rates is dwarfing the savings for the cost of the house. Because the underlying cost of the asset is not what the person buying a house is principally concerned about. They're principally concerned about how much does it cost me every month to service this loan. And that has gone up. So the interest rate policies have actually increased the cost of that good. And at the same time, as you're describing, as all of this is going on, the cost of all the other goods is also going up. So the cost of housing is is going up in many ways, or at least staying the same. And it's going up if you're trying to get a mortgage. It's going up if you have rents in certain places. And the cost of everything else is going up too. So you're like in this worst possible world. And you have a good explanation for this that you quote, I think is Matthew Glacius, who basically said that he was a little bit sympathetic to the government here. He was like, the government had two choices during the pandemic. One was to go big and risk overstimulating. The other was to go small and risk depression. He was like, they were right to go big. But one of the downsides of this is that inflation um, wasn't necessarily, in his estimation, caused by the greed that you were describing. But the corporations took advantage of the inflation to be greedy. <laughs> right. so, so I don't know if you if you agree with my estimation there, but I, I do think that like a lot of people are stuck in the worst possible world. If you didn't buy a house in the middle of the pandemic and you didn't have one before and you're trying to buy a house now, you're also stuck with higher costs that are preventing you from saving enough money, but you're also caught with higher mortgage rates and a, a, a continually tough demand uh, supply environment. Right. I mean, well, this is why this debate's so important. And it's kind of how I introduced my piece, which is, you know, if if this is real, if you take the the greedflation camp, you know, on a basic level, you say corporations could actually get us out of the inflation we have by changing, you know, their their level of greed on on what they what kind of profits they're trying to squeeze out of the inner public. If you believe that then that means not only is the government not 100% responsible for inflation but the prescription the government has you know for solving it which is hiking interest rates is going to crush a lot of people who like you said are in different situations with houses they own whatever it's going to make borrowing more expensive for everybody it's going to cause a bunch of layoffs which is going to hurt the people who are already the most hurt by inflation it's just like this horrible cycle and then nobody's looking at the corporations who are actually responsible for it, which, you know, that I mean, that's why it's really critical to figure out what the, the policy prescription should be, because if it's not hiking interest rates, then we're going to make the problem a lot worse for the people who are already hurting. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not an economist, so I, I'm very thankful I don't work for the Fed. I don't know what I would do <laughs> if I was in Jerome Powell's position. But um, I do think there's more merit to the argument that at the very least, corporations have taken advantage of this moment in a way that they they couldn't have in normal inflationary time because the pandemic just created so many unique opportunities for people who wanted to jack up prices of the product that they were selling without being punished by their customers. I mean, right. that's really the key thing is... Our actions typically 
are what keep the corporations in check because we just say, oh, you know what? I'm not paying $10 for a beer. Like, forget it. Um, but when we have a bunch of disposable income, cause we haven't traveled for a year and the government's been giving us some checks and we're getting some extra stimulus and whatever, then we don't care as much about spending that money and the, the calculation kind of changes. Yeah. The big question over like all of this is, well, what's, what's new about this? Cause I think people who critique the greedflation argument are like, well, corporations are greedy. That's nothing new. Like they'll, they'll charge what they can charge. Right, and I'm persuaded by this. Like corporations will charge what they can charge, with few exceptions. Right. The the thing is, though, I think differently about a big screen TV than I do eggs, and I I also think differently about a big screen TV than I think chicken, for example, because these meat packing plants and meat processing companies have an oligopoly, and a lot of these in a lot of these situations, you have essential goods, food with very few players in the market and they they're kind of immune to certain levels of competition and that's where I start to sound like Bernie Sanders <laughs> it's like like I don't care how much you charge for a TV right that's fine and actually there's been massive massive decreases in price of most consumer electronics and all that kind of stuff if you look at it over time the problem is there's certain goods that especially in the in the short and medium term have gone significantly up, and then there's others that have for 20 years been going up, like cost of higher education and healthcare and housing, like the big ones, right, are going up regardless of the pandemic. And then they obviously the pandemic exacerbated some of those issues. So if you're the average person in this country, you, this is like as dangerous and difficult a moment for you economically than we've seen. Right. I mean, the the really good example is just buying a car. Um, and that to me, that's one of the ones that like has, you know, I've seen a lot of writing about is kind of hammered at home for me is, you know, the the chips that go in a lot of vehicles got much more expensive during the pandemic. Everybody remembers the chip shortage. And then there was all the shipping problems and all these things that are playing a part in it. And so, you know, when you have 20,000 of these chips in certain cars, it makes cars more expensive, of course. But we can see how much more cost that should add to a vehicle versus how much more cost these car companies were actually adding to a vehicle. And they're marking the price up much more than they had to. And they're still selling a bunch of cars. And the reason they're doing that is because used car prices also went up. And because when you need a car, if cars everywhere from every company are getting more expensive, you're just kind of boxed in and screwed. It's like, okay, I need the car. Like my my car broke down. I have to go to work. I have to buy a car. And and then you don't really have choice when every single company is seeing all of their prices go up by so much. Maybe you want to buy a used car, but oh, guess what? The used car market is actually, you know, the inflation there is bigger than the new car market. So it, it's it's a really difficult spot to be in as a consumer. And because it's all happening at once, it is this really unique environment where, you know, you don't have much choice. You're just like, sometimes I need a certain product. You need diapers, like you need diapers. There's not like a a middle ground there. Um, And I think that's the thing a lot of consumers are running into and a lot of them were feeling. I think it's part of what made this situation really unique. And, you know, the most damning thing is that there's all these you know, corporate recordings of these like corporate they phone calls. It. Yeah, they where they're just saying, yeah, they're saying well, like- Because well, you have it, you have an incentive to your board. Like they don't, who's your constituency? It's not the American people. If I'm running Gupta Corp, I'm like, hey, like <laughs> my widgets 
we actually cost us 10 bucks to make these widgets. We used to sell them for 15. Now we're selling them for 30. And like, that's what your board wants to hear. The problem is we're also listening to that conversation right. and being like, oh, all right. I don't know what the answer is. I think uh, your, your piece will link to it in the show notes. But I do think as we close this out, the government, like, I, I, I feel for people trying to figure this out. And it reminds me a lot of the financial crisis, which was there were a lot of mistakes, but I feel for the people who were in those rooms staring down a catastrophe in many ways, trying to do the best they can. I also share the feelings of a lot of people who critiqued the people in that room because they didn't, there were a lot of people who didn't think like the average American. And so they weren't, they weren't thinking around the corner on some of the moral hazard arguments and just like they, they were treating the sort of the, the, the sort of top-down problems differently than the bottom-up problems. And I see a little bit of that here, right? Like, it's, I think this is a better version of the problems because it was a little bit more bottom-up, right? Like, that one was, like, straight up, like, you know, bail out the very biggest players and it trickles down, whereas at least this one was, like, the sin was give a bunch of average people a lot of money. Like, and I think that was screwed up the way we did it, but at least that was a little bit more defensible in the mechanism. Yeah, no, I, I think Matty Iglesias' point about this m makes total sense to me, which is it, it's hard to, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and it's really difficult to put yourself back in the position we were in when COVID was this brand new thing and the country was shutting down and we were all dealing with this like totally, you know, never before seen type pandemic sweeping across the country. And I think at that time, the decision to, you know, miss big and overshoot versus what happens if, you know, tens and millions of people go out of work in a matter of a few weeks, um, it, it was right to, we were right to handle it the way we handled it, but we're seeing the repercussions of it, you know, like we didn't nail it perfectly and uh, inflation's been around for a little while now and it's pretty sticky and it's starting to come down and I think the signals are good, but it took a while to get here. And like, that's a mistake we have to live with, I think, and say was probably the right mistake to make. Well, Isaac, thanks for joining us. Uh, to our listeners, we were planning on releasing this episode on Tuesday, which is the day that Trump is set to be arraigned, if I'm using my legal terms correctly, which is crazy to say about the former president of the United States. <laughs> so we were I was planning on reserving that day for a reaction to that, which I still may do. I was expecting the indictment to be released that day, which now we have it. So um, you may get an episode from me on Tuesday reacting to that, um, yet to be decided, but we want to make sure we get this episode up over the weekend because we want to make sure you get our quick reaction to this indictment document. So uh, you're getting it earlier than expected. So next week might be a little wonky, so bear with us. But Isaac, thanks for being with us. Uh, make sure to get out there to readtangle.com. Am I getting that right? Readtangle.com? Yeah, readtangle.com. You can check out the newsletter for free. And we've got a podcast and YouTube channel up and running now too. So yeah, I think uh, a lot of your listeners are, are like-minded folks. We'd love to have them check our stuff out. It is my favorite. I'm not just gassing up my favorite newsletter out there. Uh, it's so well done. Uh, and Isaac, always welcome back. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Ravi. I appreciate it. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherell. 